Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. It's New Year, 1923. The BBC is six weeks old. Wreath is in position, that position being behind a desk in a small cupboard. Yes, seasons one and two brought us here, to a one-room BBC in the last days of 22. Wreath has met the company secretary, Major P.F. Anderson, in a Dr. Livingstone, I presume, a moment. Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis are director and deputy of programmes. The post of chief and only engineer remains to be filled, as the chap appointed got cold feet, thinking this broadcasting malarkey won't last long. And maybe he's right. This time, Happy New Year, as that one-room BBC gets busy. Staff are hired, including a pop star turned announcer, whose broadcast you will hear this episode. A rare clip of 1920s British broadcasting. Well, that is over, and I hope you heard it clearly. And we will hear from a more recent radio superstar, perhaps the only one who started in the 1950s and is still broadcasting a daily show in the 2020s, Diddy David Hamilton, who, as an InVision announcer for Thames, even ended up in a Monty Python sketch. It's great working with comedy legends. I was working for Thames Television at the time who uh, had announcers in Vision. And it was the beginning of Monty Python, very early days of it. And somebody from the show had said, what we'd like to do is we'd like to have the Thames logo and their announcer, David Hamilton, introduce the programme. So um, can we get clearance from Thames if that's OK? And uh, could David come down to BBC Television Centre and record it? So... Tim said, well, we want to see what the script is. And when they saw the script, they said, yes, fine, have them both. So I went down, I met them all, Cleese and Palin and the rest of the gang. And they were all lovely, you know, very welcoming. And then I sat down at the microphone, uh, at the camera rather, and I read out the words, uh, which were this. Good evening. There are some terrific programmes for you tonight on Thames. But first, here's a load of old rubbish on the BBC. (laughs) Thames were delighted, so their ident went out on BBC television. A load of old rubbish from the BBC indeed. Well, here's a load of old stuff, hopefully not rubbish, and definitely not from the BBC, because this podcast is not made by the BBC at all. It's just made by me, Paul Carenza. Hello. Telling the origin story of British broadcasting. It's season three. We'll cover the BBC boom of 1923, told in the hundredth year of this British broadcasting century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello. It's New Year 2022, as I record this, the centenary year of the BBC. Yes, we've finally made it. Well, welcome to season three, beginning this episode. And across season three, we're going to explore January to May 1923. Yes, we tell this origin story of broadcasting the very slow way. Now, these are formative months of British broadcasting as the BBC goes from Magnet House, this temporary accommodation, to Savoy Hill. From a staff of four in December 22 to a staff of 15 by the end of January, a staff of 30 by March and on and on, doubling at a rate of knots, filling more rooms, hiring more rooms. And along the way, broadcasting the first opera, the first political debate, battling the press over listings, sparking the Sykes inquiry to look into the BBC's future when it was only six months old and indeed to see if it would have a future. All of that to come over the next several episodes. 
We'll also continue having fab guests, including authors, academics, and indeed this time, a superstar broadcaster. Very excited to bring you part two of a three-part David Hamilton interview. He was here on episode 30. He's back now with tales of Ken Dodd and how he gained the greatest listening figures in the history of British radio, never to be surpassed. Hello, Ghost of Broadcasting Future here. I hope you had a good Christmas. One BBC radio programme on Boxing Day featured Paul talking about this podcast. If you're quick, you can listen again to Paul Carenza chatting to Paul Hayes on BBC Radio Norfolk's Treasure Quest Extra Time about what led to this podcast. The link is in the show notes. Now I'm off to be Siri on someone's phone again. Wait up, I'm coming. So it's New Year as we release this episode. Happy New Year to you if you're listening at time of release. If you're listening far beyond, welcome. I hope you've had a chance to discover our back catalogue of episodes. And if you haven't, you can always pick up the show from here. I try and make it that any episode is intended as your way in. If you're delving back but you haven't got the stomach for all 40-odd episodes so far, uh, Peter Eckersley and the 2MT Riddle story around episodes 8 and 9, they're well worth your listening time. And the tale of the first broadcast, that was fun too. Speaking of which, I'm touring my one-man play, The First Broadcast, throughout 2022. So if you have a venue and would like this one-man play at your place, do get in touch. It's me as Arthur Burrows and Peter Eckersley. Yes, playing two people because I'm cheap and can't be bothered to hire another actor. And if you want to know who Arthur Burrows and Peter Eckersley were, then, well, that's what this podcast is all about over the last 40 episodes. Now, Peter Eckersley will return to our story in about five episodes' time. For now, Arthur Burroughs, he is right at the heart of it, as the BBC really gets going in early January 1923. Burroughs' dream of broadcasting is realised. A wireless broadcasting service with Burroughs in charge of programmes and most of the announcements, at least from London. There is also Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle stations. We will return to them in a couple of episodes' time. For now, though, I want to focus on BBC HQ. And like an Amish schoolhouse, it's one room and it's getting increasingly cramped. Now, this one room is on loan from the General Electric Company in a building called Magnet House. <laughs> It is certainly an interesting experience to be in a concern when it is beginning, when the staff number four, and to see it grow to the organisation as existing now. The words of John Reith, although by New Year's Day 1923, he'd already fallen out with a third of his workforce. Yes, of Major Anderson, the company secretary, Reith said, I discovered he thought he was to be independent of me, but I adjusted that satisfactorily and quickly. Two days in, Reith is already starting to make his authority known, even if at this point the BBC's moral authority isn't quite cemented in. And in what flood did visitors and reports come upon us, and how swamped we were with work? I do not suppose that any who shared those early days will be likely to forget them. Mr Burroughs and Mr Lewis established themselves in Magnet House at the beginning of 1923, and soon preliminary organisation began to take effect. In fact, a quiet corner in another room had had to be found for the accountant and the clerk. In that one-room office, Burroughs and Lewis shared a desk to one side. Then there was a large table in the middle of this room at Magnet House, where throughout January, up to a dozen or so clerical staff were frantically engaged in sorting correspondence. The mail was terrific. Gradually, each corner, each space becomes occupied. Typists, desks, filing cabinets, half a dozen telephones ringing off the hook all day long. Or, to put it in the words of the Deputy Programme Director Cecil Lewis... Pandemonium reigned. 
Telephones never stop ringing, typewriters never stop clicking, the duplicating machine duplicated for dear life, the office was bombarded from morning to night by the press, the public, the wireless manufacturer, people of every kind and class who, for some reason or other, were interested in broadcasting. Both visitors and staff increased almost daily. Before long, Arthur Burroughs, the programme director and largely the voice of the BBC at this point, complained that he had to place his hat on top of his walking stick against a wall. There was nowhere else for it. Dear, oh dear, these people are British. Burroughs wrote, We must have appeared as maniacs. Throughout the day, we worked like lunatics in a pandemonium such as I hope will never fall to anyone else's experience. John Reith wrote at the time, Overwork is normal with us. It has really been rather desperate, office hours 9.30am to 9.30pm, but we all like it. Lewis told Reith that he might have a nervous breakdown from all the overwork. Reith asked if he'd let him know when he was planning this breakdown so they could schedule them accordingly and make sure they didn't have them at the same time. Within weeks, the one-room BBC got so busy that barriers had to be erected to divide the few desks from the visitors. But yes, at this point, you could just turn up to the BBC and try and get on air. There was a sign on the door of these leased offices, BBC, come in. And they did. Some came to pitch programme ideas. Some wanted to use radio to communicate with aliens. Some were journalists, eager to puzzle out what radio was, or how to sell it to their readers, or just simply what was on. Inside or outside Magnet House, Fleet Street newspaper reporters waited hours each evening in early 1923 to find out the scheduler programmes for the next day, which the Magnet House staff were still working on at the time. No one knew what would be on a week from now, maybe not even what would be on tomorrow, or even that evening. But the press persisted. They wanted to know what was on, to print listings. The Radio Times was a way off yet, and regular listings in newspapers were just coming in now. The New Year's Day listings in the Derby Daily Telegraph were both vague and inaccurate. Uh, from London, wavelength 369 metres, call signal 2LO, 5pm to 10.30pm, uh, concert, with intervals, at 7pm and 9.30pm for transmission of late news. It was clearer on Birmingham's schedule. 6.30 children's stories, 7pm news, 7.15 to 8.30pm and 9 to 9.45pm. A concert with Miss Gladys Morris, soprano, Miss Marjorie Edwards, entertainer, the Mosley and Balsall Heath Quartet, Mr Eric Barnicut, violin, Mr Alan Barnicut, second violin, Miss Marjorie Wilson, cello, and Mr R.K. Vaughan, piano, Mr Gilmore, flautist, and Mr James, the clarinet. But as for London listings, it took till just the next day, until one London newspaper began to print more accurate and regular daily listings. Here's Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective. I'd actually been reading, I think it was the Tim Wonder book, and he reminded me that the first programmes that were published in the press, the first programme listings, were in the Pall Mall Gazette. So just from reading, reading about that, I thought, oh, it'd be quite nice to see what the BBC programme listings were... Uh, were like um, at the very, in the very early days of the of the BBC. So the Palomar Gazette printed its first programme listing for 2LO on the 2nd of January 1923. And the programme schedule from January the 2nd 1923, that first day of more organised listings. The British Broadcasting Programme for tonight in London is as follows. 5 to 5.45, children's stories, Miss Irene Cryer, soprano, Mr Morris Cole, solo pianoforte, Etude in C-sharp minor and Shepherd Fennel's Dance. That pianist, the BBC's very first, we mentioned on our summary podcast a few episodes ago, Maurice Cole had been test broadcasting since before there was a BBC and he was very fancifully spoken. I remember one man coming up to tell me one day, we call them studio managers nowadays, I think they were balance and control or something in those days, came up and whispered in my ear while I was playing 
Oh, it's coming over very nicely. I was nearly put off. I nearly stopped at this point, you know. The rest of that first listing on January the 2nd, 23, we will post on our Facebook page and our Twitter profile. At BB Century, you can find us there. But it includes two little dances by Fink, some dance music, a foxtrot, plenty more sopranos. In fact, Mr Stanton Jeffries, the musical director, had previously complained of too many sopranos. And closing that first night, Mr Norman Long, humour at the piano. We'll have more about Norman Long in a future episode. As for regular staff, that was certainly growing. And very shortly on this episode, we're going to meet Reith's first or maybe second appointed staff member. He was definitely either the fifth or sixth of the BBC. Rex Palmer. Hear from him after we hear from a more recent broadcaster. Yes, let's welcome back the delightful Diddy David Hamilton. And the nickname Diddy, of course, came from Doddy, Ken Dodd. So I asked David Hamilton about working with the madcap comic legend from Liverpool. Uh, the Ken Dodd story was that um, this was ABC and uh, the year was 1967. And they were doing a series called Doddy's Music Box. The idea was to have Ken Dodd, who was also a singer, of course. He'd been number one in the charts with tears not long before that. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, he would introduce various pop stars of the day, people like Dusty Springfield, Matt Monroe, Billy Fury, interspersed with sketches that he would do with a repertory of actors and um, a straight man, you know, somebody to introduce him and mm-hmm. feed him the straight lines. And the chap who he'd been working for uh, the BBC, David Marlowe, he was under contract to the BBC. He couldn't do it. And Ken said, what about that chap who does the announcing? Um, what's his name? David Hamilton. Why don't we why don't we get him in? So I remember we went there the first day of rehearsals and I stood next to Ken, who's probably about, you know, half a foot taller than me. And he, uh, the only people there where there was no audience, there were makeup girls, um, props boys, cameramen. And he looked at me and he said, uh, what do you think, Diddy David? So um, everybody, everybody chuckled. And in fairness to him, he took me to one side afterwards and he said, do you mind me calling you that? He said, because if you mind, I won't do it anymore. Uh, he said, but if you don't mind, he said, I think I better warn you, it might stick. So <laughs> I said, well, I don't mind. And I've been stuck with it now for how many years is it? Probably yeah. about 50 years. A while. Yeah, yeah. it certainly stuck. Uh, it's been a while, yes. Yeah. Well, it's good. It's good of him that he, he checked with that sort of thing because you don't imagine that many comedians nowadays would uh, would would bother. So he seems like one of the good guys with it. Well, I got to know Ken very well, and I did other TV shows with him, and I did, uh, you know, uh, one of the first things he rode me into was personal appearances because he did loads of, you know, um, opening Tesco supermarkets mm, and things yeah. like that. And uh, he, he, one or two people said, can you bring along Diddy David as well? So um, he said to me, do you want to come along? I said, yeah, great. He said, I'll get, I'll get you an envelope, you know, with, with something in it. So we turned up at this um, supermarket in uh, Liverpool and uh, we stayed there for about an hour and chatted to people, signed a few autographs with Ken was such a big draw, even in his hometown, you know, or home city. Uh, so many people turned up. And at the end of the uh, thing, we were there for about half an hour. He said to the manager of the supermarket, he said, here, Whack, he said, uh, give us a bit of meat for me dinner, you know. <laughs> so the manager opened up this, this fridge and Ken had this grip, this huge bag. And into it, he put lamb chops, steak, 
sausages, pork chops. It was absolutely heaving. And, and he looked over, his, we walked out of the shop and he looked over his shoulder at me and he went, listen and learn. So <laughs> <laughs> I to do it. So I to do it. Yeah. Very nice. Very he nice. Was, he was great. He came to see me in, in pantomime. I did my first pantomime at Bradford Alhambra, a wonderful old theatre. And um, he turned up one day. One day I didn't know he was in. He came to the matinee. And then he came round backstage and he said, come on, I'll take you out for dinner. And I thought, that's my phone guy. That's all right. Yeah, okay. it's, it's probably Ken Dodd's agent. Mm. Um, he said, come on, he said, I'll take you out for dinner. So knowing that Ken was you know, a little bit careful, you know, you could say, mm. I thought, oh, wow, fantastic. Anyway, we went across the road to the local fish and chip shop and we went into the back parlour and it was unlicensed. He got two uh, lagers out of his overcoat pocket and mm. put them down. On the, on the table, and he said to the woman behind the counter, he said, uh, cotton chips twice, love. So uh, we sat there, and we're eating cotton chips, and we're drinking lager. <laughs> and I thought, my God, this, this man is, he's just been number one in the charts with tears. He's done a sellout season at the London Palladium, record-breaking, longest season of anyone had ever done at the Palladium. Um, he's Variety Club Entertainer of the Year, and we're sitting in a fish and chip shop, Eating cotton chips, which I love, by the way, and drinking lager. And I thought, you know, stars normally would probably go to the, you know, Yates's Wine Lodge or somewhere, you know, the nicest place in town. But not Ken, he wasn't bothered about that. But what he gave me, actually, he gave me great advice on playing buttons. And he was a wonderful buttons. And I thought about it afterwards. And I thought, well, what would you rather do? Would you rather go to the best hotel or restaurant and, you know, have wonderful slap up meal and talk about holidays and football or would you rather go to the fish and chip shop across the road and get advice from a master that money couldn't buy so i i think at the end of the day you chose well was, yeah absolutely yeah and i think i i heard somewhere that song tears wasn't that the the third biggest selling song of the 60s i think after it was beatles beatles and then and then tears. yes i think it was the biggest selling single of its year which would mm. be probably about 65 yeah um, and definitely one of the best selling singles yeah yeah wow wow yeah. he was the, he was uh, the the clown who liked to sing you see when you go to a show with somebody like ken dodd you get the laughter and the tears. Mm. And he was clever enough to know that. More from David Hamilton soon. But back in January 1923, the BBC had these two premises in London, head office at the temporary Magnet House, and half a mile away, the studios at Marconi House. Now, bearing in mind that Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis were director and deputy programme directors and the main announcers, also known to young listeners as Uncle Arthur and Uncle Caractacus, they would race from their desks to the studio, the end of the workday, the start of the broadcast evening. They were fuelled largely by beer and meringues, their favourite and rather swift to consume. So you know those pre-title sequences on Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway when they raced to the studio? Well, it was a bit like that, only it's Burroughs and Lewis, and it's half a mile through central London with beer and meringues. The same audience every night and a different programme. Cecil Lewis described the microphones as children pining for attention and being rewarded with it. We had been appointed guardians and attendants of the most voracious creature ever created by man, a microphone, which clamoured daily to be fed. At first it was satisfied with simple fare and a little of it, but as the days went by, its appetite not only grew in the amount it wished to devour, but also became fastidious in the extreme as to the quality of the repast set before it, a most terrible and insatiable monster. So... 
they needed help. In the first days of January 1923, Rex Palmer sought an interview to be a new announcer. Perhaps he turned up at that one-room BBC with the journalists and the people wanting to communicate with aliens and asked for a job. Now, Rex Palmer had experience. Like Maurice Cole, Palmer had experimentally broadcast at London's wireless convention in September of 22. He was a singer, a performer, but he was smitten with radio. Rex Palmer later said how nervous he was waiting to go into Reith's cubicle for his interview and that it was something of an ordeal. Perhaps Reith asked his pressing interview question, Do you accept the fundamental teaching of Jesus Christ? As he asked so many employees. If a man was going to be concerned with the ethical side, as in talks and so forth, I was interested to know what his views were on religion. I never said, you must be a Christian. It was where their modes of life and their attitude to religion and their hobbies, awfully important, where those things might affect the intellectual or ethical content of the programs that I was interested to know all I could about the staff that I was going to engage. Rex Palmer passed the test, becoming the BBC's fifth or sixth employee. See you next week for his rival to that claim. Rex Palmer started on Children's Hour on Monday the 8th of January, first as Uncle Fred, and then changed his name to Uncle Rex fairly swiftly. And reminiscing on that studio at Marconi House, ladies and gents, the ever-cheery Rex Palmer. I can still see that dingy room with an old horsehair settee, rather the worse for wear, and a few kitchen-type chairs. But we had a piano and a pianola. It played from perforated music rolls, which were liable to go berserk and unravel themselves all over the studio floor. All right, not always cheery. And yet Rex Palmer was one of the most popular early voices of the BBC. He was popular in the children's hour. He was popular as an announcer and as a station manager of 2LO, which he took over from Stanton Jeffries when Stanton was moved from 2LO manager to become the BBC's first musical director. So there's a bit of, well, musical chairs going on to begin with then. And that's partly because everyone is doing everything. So he had several names then. He was Rex Palmer, he was Uncle Fred, Uncle Rex, and he was Rex Faithful as well, his middle name. He had a career as a singer, a sort of pop star of his day. And he would still sing occasionally on the air too, mostly in the children's hour. Rex Palmer's obituary called him the first announcer, the first director of the London station, although Stanton Jeffries was there as well, the first director of the Daventry station 5XX, the first person to book artists and establish a regular booking system. When he left the BBC in 1929, the Evening Standard called him the most famous announcer the BBC has ever had, while the Evening News said he was one of the original five members of the BBC. Here, then, is a rare early clip of Rex Palmer in action as an announcer. I believe this is one of the very few recorded clips from the BBC in the 1920s, before they started recording shows, largely when technology caught up with them, and they had the empire to broadcast to in different time zones. Now, I'm not sure exactly when this was in the 1920s. If you do, I'm all ears. But ladies and gentlemen, here's a taste of very early BBC broadcasting from Rex Palmer. We were on the air with our concerts only in the evenings. Well, that is over, and I hope you heard it clearly and enjoyed it as much as we did in the studio. Stand by for a few moments, please, while the orchestra gets ready. 
There, the stilted, marvellous tones of 1920s radio announcer Rex Palmer. Before we go, let's flash forward four decades to David Hamilton, the presenter with the largest listening figures ever on British radio. In the 1960s, he was a presenter on the BBC's Light programme. How many presenters from the Light programme are still broadcasting today? Not many. In David's case, he's on Boom Radio today, and I caught up with David just after he came off air. I asked him about that change in 1967, the end of the Light programme, the start of Radio 1 and Radio 2. And he broadcast on both. I was working for the Light Programme. The first show that I did for the Light Programme was a show called The Beat Show. And it was from the Playhouse Theatre in Manchester. And it featured the BBC Northern Dance Orchestra and some of the pop groups of the day, people like The Searchers, Wayne Fontana and The Mindbenders. And it was recorded on a Monday night and it went out on Thursday lunchtime. And I introduced it with a phrase that now sounds pretty corny. I said... It's a beat show with Bernard Herman and the NDO, the band with the beat that's reaped. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very good. Well, it's pretty corny even it then. It works. But it's, uh, yeah, it sounds really corny now. Uh, then I started working for the Light Programme in London, and uh, I was very disappointed when Radio 1 launched uh, and not to get a, a show on there. But I think what happened was that, you know, they just got a lot of the pirates and uh, they signed up the pirates who'd been very, very popular. And I pinched a lot of their audience, mm. of course. So I had to wait until 1973 to get a daily show. Uh, but joining the team of Radio One, which was then the pop music station of the nation in 1973, was really exciting. And it led to doing, you know, things like Top of the Pops. But at that particular time, things were very different because pop music at that time appealed to all members of the family. The same people who would sit around the telly on a Thursday night watching Top of the Pops, wondering what was going to be number one that week. And pop music appealed to everybody from grandparents through to grandchildren, unlike, you know, it's completely different. So it was a golden era, really. And between 70 well for the people who started at the beginning of, of radio one from 67 to 73 there was no other music station so they had just an absolute captive audience i read somewhere you hold a record for the this giant audience because you're on radio one and radio two at, at the same time is that right yes in 75 uh radio two chopped the afternoon show it was an economy move and for about two and a half years after that, my show was heard on Radio 1 and Radio 2, which gave it an enormous audience. I mean, it's hard to, the BBC's way of calculating audiences was not that reliable at the time. But, um, you know, depending on which newspaper you read, it was 17, 18 or 19 million. But wow. with so many radio stations now and uh, mm. the audience is so fragmented, you would never get listening figures like that again. Mm. A delight to chat to David. His books are highly recommended. Head to ashwaterpress.co.uk for the golden days of Radio 1 and commercial radio days. That's D-A-Z-E. Now, we've even got a part three of that interview on a future episode, or you can watch in vision my interview with David by joining up to patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. You can watch the interview in full and you can help keep this podcast afloat in the meantime. The link to that video for Patreon subscribers is in the show notes. And thank you if you support us on there.
Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing what we do. We're on Facebook and Twitter. You can say hi there. You can follow, join our group and so on, or just share what we do the old-fashioned way. You know, tell someone about the podcast in a conversation, old school. And we here are all about the old school. So over 40 episodes so far, we've been following the story of broadcasting from when it was an idea from one or two people, the technology catching up. And really from this episode on, it starts to blossom. It goes from four employees at the BBC to a dozen and then several dozen fairly swiftly. But we'll slow right down again because next time, well, I said that Rex Palmer was fifth or sixth BBC employee. Who was his rival then for that title? For the first time, a female employee, Isabel Shields. Dr. Kate Murphy will tell us all about her on the next episode of... The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Do please review this podcast where you found it. There's a good sport. It all helps. We're a one-man band, you know. Archive clips are either public domain or the BBC's, in which case they're used with kind permission, BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. Very much so. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for the Beeb's first female employee on the British Broadcasting Century.